0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg. With us now, Michael Clority with UBS, head of U.S. rate strategies. Let's start with that idea, Michael Clority. Who has their foot on the two-year yield?
1: Well, the, the Fed does. Um, so, you know, with their guidance, um, you know, they're, they're sort of suggesting that they're going to keep rates low for a long time. Uh, they'll continue to hold this front end down. I think when you look at the bond market, you want to look at the Fed's uh, actions in, in two different parts of the curve. So, the front of the curve is all about what they're going to tell us they're going to do with the policy rate. The back of the curve is sort of QE driven, but the Treasury is issuing a lot more at the back of the curve than the Fed's buying.
0: So let's talk about the issuance here. Issuance is a flood of paper onto the market. And to be clear, that means yield up, price down. How much of that movement would you calculate?
1: So what's been surprising is is how well we've been able to handle the supply so far. That said, it's it's just relentless. So if we look, again, only focusing on the long end, front end supply. During Operation Twist, the Fed sold uh, $630 billion of three-year and shorter treasuries, and it barely moved yields at all. So long end is where the supply matters. Seven year and longer auctions between March and October is going to be up 84%. So even though the Fed's buying its peanuts relative to what the, the Treasury is issuing out there, um, You know we think we're just going to see this steady weight of supply dragging yields a bit higher.
2: Michael, not a trick question, a genuine curiosity from me. What's the history of supply mattering in the Treasury market?
1: So generally it, it matters at extreme. So it mattered a lot when the US ran a surplus for four years, um, back around the uh, the turn of the century. Um so back then we saw twos tens invert 50 basis points, twos tens swaps stayed positive that whole time. So you had this incredible richness of of long treasuries back then. Um, You know, it it mattered a little bit uh, coming out of the last crisis when we saw, uh, you know, a lot. The the Treasury initially issued lots of bills to handle uh, the jump in supply as they termed it out. It really did offset some of the effects of QE. And that's what we think right here is is the issuance matters more than QE right now. Um, You know, the Fed would have to upsize enormously to offset this supply.
2: Well, let me throw this in there, Michael. What matters ultimately more? The outlook for inflation or the outlook for supply at the long end?
1: Right. So, so the, I guess within this the, inflation will set a fundamental level for bond yields. Supply can you know create some significant swings within that. Um, so we think we're so low right now. There's just not much upside. I mean, we, we've seen a lot. We saw equities move pretty substantially in the last month. Ten-year yields stayed in a six basis point range the whole month. So you know you're just not seeing much of a hedge benefit from treasuries at these levels. That means there's less fundamental value in treasuries. Treasuries underperform corporates the vast majority of the time. The only reason you own a treasury is because when they outperform corporates is when the equity market gets hurt. When you lose some of that uh, hedge value, that diversification value, uh, treasury is fundamentally worth less.
3: This is such an important point, and it's one that a lot of people are highlighting this morning, saying that treasuries can no longer be a hedge, right? They never, no longer can be a ballast to your 60-40 portfolio. Do you think that it is too soon to ring the death toll for uh, bonds acting as this ballast, or, or do you think that this is an accurate characterization?
1: I think at these yield levels is accurate. You know, we back up a little bit in yields, and I think it'll the, the behavior will come back. But, you know, with, with, U.S. rates pinned at zero on the front end. You know, the Fed has repeatedly said they're not going to go through zero. If they do go through zero, it threatens disruptions in the repo market. Um, when the Uncle Sam has $20 trillion to, of debt to roll over, the last thing you want to do is interfere with the funding of those treasuries. So, you know, at, at these yield levels, I don't think there's much benefit. If we cheapen a little bit, I do think it comes back.
3: All right. uh, So can you give us a sense of where you start seeing value again? Just to give you a perspective, the 30-year Treasury yield right now, the highest since June at 1.51 percent.
1: Yeah, I think we we need to sort of back up another 20 bips before uh, you get a little more interested in them, before we get some of that hedge value back in the equation.
2: Worth pointing out, Tom, year-to-date, long Treasuries, TLT, the ETF, up 20 percent through 2020. I think the key clause in what Michael is pushing right now is just the idea that at these levels, they don't present the same opportunity they did this year. And let's think about how many people came on the program last year saying that the next test for treasuries, the budget deficit, all those bad things. And what happened to treasuries when things hit the fan? They rallied and they
0: rallied aggressively. Right. I mean, this is really important. Michael Clarity, very quickly here. I just think it's so important. The great measurement of a bond bear market is when your clients get three months in a row statements of their for sure like a rock bond portfolio going down in price. Where's that equivalent 10-year yield now? I mean, on a full faith and credit 10-year, where does the pain really click in?
1: Well, again, that's, that's one of the issues is at these year levels, I'm not seeing much income. Um, so, you know, normally you could have prices fall a little bit, but it gets offset by the income. Forgetting these yield levels, my income is so small um, that, you know, again, it all depends on distribution. But we get up, we we sort of sell off five basis points a month more than gets you there into negative territory. Wow, wow,
0: wow.
2: Michael, would you still call the U.S. the high-yielder compared to what's playing out in Europe at the moment, given where we are in a 10-year in Germany, negative 54 basis points for a foreign investor right now from a international perspective looking to the United States? Just how attractive are things?
1: It, that actually, there's still some value there. Um, you know, what we've seen is some of the, uh, the, the FX hedging uh, costs have actually come down um, recently. There seems to be a, a lot of street balance sheet out there right now that's reduced those costs. So there is a little bit of value mm-hmm. for some of those foreign investors, but you know, again, not exactly a jump up and down sort of price.
2: Michael, great to catch up, sir. Thank you. Michael Clotty there of UBS on this rights market.
0: David Riley gets started with Blue Bay Asset Management. We're thrilled he could join us today. David, first chart I looked at today were those five year out, five year forward break evens. It's so different for the United States with a whiff of inflation versus the disinflation of Europe. What does that signal? Well, I think that
4: signals that uh, Europe is in a very difficult situation in terms of the extent of the disinflationary, deflationary um, forces. I mean, we've had record low um, inflation prints recently, and you know, I think that's going to prompt the ECB to um, implement more uh, policy action, but probably not until the end of the year or. Um, Early, uh, early next year. Well, I think in the uh, US, you know, there there is still a challenge on the inflation front, but I think there's more um, upside potential, particularly if we do get um, a substantive fiscal stimulus um, after the US elections.
3: Given that, David, do you think that the euro, uh, the rally that we've seen versus the dollar, is overdone?
4: Uh, Well, I, I, I think if we get a situation where. Um, you know, you were discussing before, Let's, you know, a, a, a Democrat clean sweep, then I think market expectations will be for a very significant um, uh, U.S. fiscal uh, stimulus sometime uh, in early 2021. I think it's going to be associated, at least initially, with uh, a weaker dollar. Um, I think you're right, Lisa. Does that play out with a stronger euro? I, I actually think it will you know, benefit the sort of laggards of this recent um, dollar weakness, which has been emerging market um, currencies. I think a, a sort of Biden and Democratic clean sweep is unambiguously positive for emerging market assets, including um, currencies. So that's where I'd rather play, where I think we're going to see some future dollar weakness.
2: Is that just a trade policy trade, David? What is that?
4: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I do think that, um, there is a sort of um, trade policy premium uncertainty associated with a um, Trump uh, administration. And uh, that extends not just to, obviously, relationships with um, China, but but also the way that tariff policy is being used with a number of um, trading partners, in, in, including allies of um, the U.S. as well. So I think if you take that out, that other things being equal, that implies... Um, a weaker dollar. And I I think a big U.S. fiscal stimulus package would also be then a sort of signal for the market to sort of more aggressively or decisively go into a rotation trade and a kind of global reflation trade. I think you get a steeper uh, treasury curve. But as part of that as well, I think you get some rotation from, dare I say, from growth to value, um, but also into, I think, some of those assets like emerging markets that, that do better in a sort of global reflation world.
2: Dare I say it, you said it, David, so let's discuss it. (laughs) This rotation, the elusive rotation, this idea that banks can start doing well, that curves can start steepening. I mean, that's the European trade. That's the long right there. That's the trade everyone wants to see work and just hasn't for so long, David. If it work in the United States, can it work in Europe? Um, Well, yeah,
4: I mean, I think it can help. Um, I think if we see that kind of move in in the US and steeper curves, then um, to some extent um, that would sort of show the way for uh, European policymakers. I mean, we have seen a better and more coherent policy response from European policymakers, particularly on the fiscal side in this crisis um, than we've seen in um, previous crises. But I I, I do think that a part of, you know, in order to get that, know, make out that kind of Japanisation story for for, for Europe, we're going to need continued fiscal um, policy support, and I think the ECB is going to have to accommodate that by extending its Um, asset purchases by essentially saying we're going to backstop um, government borrowing and don't worry about uh, how much debt there is uh, right now. Keep on borrowing, keep on supporting uh, the recovery. And I think if we get that as a story, not only in the US, but also in Europe, then I think we will see um, steeper curves. And I think it will be beneficial for cyclicals um, and value uh, like financials.
3: David, what's your hedge? what's your go- to asset to uh, counteract if you're wrong about this reflation trade?
4: yeah i mean it's it's actually um, you know not an easy thing to do to find hedges for um, portfolios right now because I think the way that uh, fixed income has behaved, core government bonds, uh, you know, during September shows that it's become very um, asymmetric. I think it's hard for those yields to go much lower. And I think if we do get some positive news, um, incremental policy news, particularly on the fiscal side, but, but also in terms of, for example, a vaccine before um, year end, then, then I think those yields sort of move higher. How do you try to sort of mitigate that risk a little bit? I mean, we've reduced some of the risk within our portfolios, given the level of uncertainty at the moment. But also, you you stick with your buyers to sort of up in quality to sectors like utilities in um, uh, high grade credit?
2: David, great to catch up as always. Good to see you, sir. Uh, David Riley <laughs> there of Blue Bay Asset Management on the latest in Europe.
0: Right now, Julie Norman with us, with UCL, professor of political science. And what's fascinating about her is her study and her expertise in academics for conflict. Her focus is on Arab-Israeli conflicts and particularly a focus around the Palestinians. But far more, it is just simply about the politics of our conflict. Julie, I, I don't mean to make light of it. But you could take your conflict over to the culture wars of the United States of America. How will they play out in the next 29 days? Well,
5: Tom, that's certainly what we're all going to be looking at. This has obviously been such a polarized year, a very polarized election. And with the events of the recent days, with Trump's diagnosis, with the response to that, it's looking like the end of the campaign is going to look even more different than we had thought before before real change-ups in both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign and how they move forward in this crucial time leading up to Election Day in November.
0: I mean, you lead up to Election Day in November, all the focus on the president tweeting out massively, single-line, all-cap tweets. He just put out moments ago one that looked like it was pre-programmed, an election tweet as well. What should we look for from the other guy, from Vice President Biden?
5: Well, Biden really needs to keep up his own momentum for these crucial weeks. He has already decided to suspend negative ads while Trump is, is sick and has canceled a few events, but for the most part is moving ahead with his plans planned events on starting in Florida this week. So it's really crucial that Biden keeps that going. He needs to make sure that he gets out the vote and keeps that enthusiasm going as it gets closer to November and doesn't play it too safe, even though he's ahead in the polls.
2: Julia, at what point do some of these Senate Republicans look at these polls and start to break away and go solo?
5: Well, you know, that's something that we've been wondering really from the start of Trump's ascendancy. And so far, most Republican senators have stayed aligned with Trump of course with a few pretty notable exceptions. But I think for Senate Republicans right now, especially with the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, trying to push through the Senate, there's a sense of commitment to conservative values, conservative policies, and really trying to look more at the long game of staying committed to those aims rather than necessarily making a break from Trump and seeing keeping a um, kind of a a standard strong front with the Republican Party with these conservative values seems to be the best way forward for most of those senators right now.
2: Judy, just on process, just quickly, how difficult is it to get the Senate operational now, given that some Senate Republicans have actually been exposed to COVID-19? Can you walk us through the process just briefly for the next couple of weeks, what that might look like down in Washington?
5: Sure. So we've heard from Mitch McConnell that most Senate activity will be suspended this week and not start again until um, the week of October 12th, at least. Um, But McConnell has emphasized that the confirmation process for Amy Coney Barrett will move forward. In that regard, some of the meetings and procedures that they're currently having. um, People, even if they're sick or don't feel safe coming in, can tune in virtually. Where that's going to change change is when there's actually a vote. For a vote, they will actually need senators to come and be physically present. And so that is really when it will probably depend on the health of those senators who have been infected so far and the extent to which the virus has moved between other, um, other members
3: by that point. There's so much confusion around the virus and how it's hitting uh, Washington and President Trump even with conflicting data, conflicting information from his own doctors over the weekend. Mm -hmm. Julie, from an international relations perspective, given the fact that President Trump is on the mend, he does appear to be, although there is such a lack of consistency in the information, how much does it put the U.S. at risk or put the U.S. at a more vulnerable position when it comes to dealing with uh, other countries?
5: Well, you know, we we have seen some reports, even as as recently as today, that this is a rather vulnerable moment for the United States, having the president hospitalized. Even though, as you noted, does seem to be recovering and hopefully will recover within the next few days. But when you have a president who is um, who is hospitalized, you also have a number of other members from the highest levels of government who are. Sick or a potential for being sick, and also just the country really quite distracted at this moment. Um, you know, from a security point of view, the United States is is uh, you know relatively vulnerable. But I say that relatively uh, strongly. That the U.S. Everything else that we have is in place. There are so many agencies and people beyond the president and beyond the White House that are really gauge much more of our international relations that this is not a time to be you know afraid so to speak but just to be mindful that it is a rather unprecedented situation
2: late start to the year for universities here in the united kingdom if you're not familiar with the education (coughs) system and i believe first day of the term today over at ucl so good luck julie great to catch up julie norman university college london
0: professor of political science Brett Ryan with us with Deutsche Bank, the senior U.S. economist, and he went right to where I was in the unemployment report. It was a good report, mixed report, and markets certainly reacting to it. But Brett Ryan, you went to median duration, which really shows two Americas. Discuss what you saw in a little bit more difficult median duration statistic.
6: Right. So the median duration uh, is basically how many weeks uh, people have been unemployed, and so you know, one of the things that we've been following is people that say they're on temporary layoff versus permanent layoff. And the issue with that is those, it's sort of a distinction without a difference when the number of weeks that people are unemployed keeps extending. And so right now you're seeing the median duration uh, go out to uh, 17.6 weeks. That's the longest since um, 2012, really. Uh, And so, you know, one of the issues that we had in the last in the wake of the financial crisis, was long-term unemployed because the longer you're out of out of a job, the more your skills erode, yeah. and the harder it is to get back into the into the labor force. But the
0: Peter Hooper team has absolutely nailed this. I mean, full disclosure, folks, Deutsche Bank has its moments where it's very optimistic on the direction, and you guys rolled over here a number of weeks Re- reaffirm right now your caution on the American recovery
6: yeah so you know it's been a faster it's been a certainly surprisingly fast start out of the gates there's no question about that we've recovered half of the jobs lost between february and april the problem is looking forward and every member of the federal reserve has basically said we need more fiscal support without that without fpuc benefits which have now been used up uh fema money is now gone that's 300 billion in income That's going to be lost uh, between Q3 and Q4. That's going to come during the holiday spending season, and it's going to come upon those with the least amount of savings and the highest marginal propensity to consume. So that's why, you know, while we've had a faster start, looking forward, it only gets more difficult for here, and there's a real risk that consumer spending could be negative uh, in Q4. And that's one of the reasons why we're more cautious.
3: Brett, right. there's a narrative that's becoming increasingly popular that even if we don't get fiscal support from Washington before the election, we'll get it at some point, and it doesn't really matter when it will help support the economic recovery on the other side. And then you have other people say, well, if you get bad data, if it really shows a market deterioration of the economic situation, that changes the dynamic, and you have to start counting for that in your calculus when you decide whether to invest. Have we already crossed that Rubicon? Are we already at the point where the data is showing a material deterioration in the momentum of the economic recovery, and people have to take count of it?
6: Well, I think, number one, I mean, tell that to the 26 million people who are collecting some form of unemployment insurance right now, and they're seeing their income cut in half. You know, tell that to the restaurants that are going into the winter season, the PPP loan money has dried up. There's $130 <laughs> billion still sitting there. Why, don't, why not allow them to take out another loan and get through the winter? Um, because these programs were designed to deal with a four to six month shutdown, not a year shutdown, um, or at least restricted capacity. Uh, and these businesses need help now, uh, and airlines as well. They need help now, not three months from now, because you're going to have you know, businesses that go under in the meantime. So I think that's the one, the one thing. Um, but yes, will there be fiscal stimulus at some point? Yes. But it's more important for the, you're going to delay the recovery by causing hardship over the next three months for thousands of businesses, restaurants that are going to go under if they don't get more PPP money. Um, and you're going to, it's it's going to hurt demand, especially during the holiday season. <clears throat> and so... Companies are going to be less likely uh, or less willing, at least, uh, to hire. And it just sets you back unnecessarily.
3: Okay, a lot of policymakers will say, show me the numbers, right? How much will it set us back? If it sets us back a little bit, but we can remove some of the political silly season around us, then it's worth it. How much does it set us back if we don't get fiscal support before the election and it's prolonged for months to come?
6: Well, I think it, it risks the consumer consumer spending recovery, and you could have a negative quarter of consumer spending, and basically, that that's a fifty percent chance that you're going to have uh, a negative quarter of growth, and the economy is not exiting recession, and it's hard for the NABE to, you know, to, um, you know, to uh, declare the end of the recession, and it could weigh on jobs. We've already seen a slowing in the pace of job gains, uh, as we saw at the last report. As the BLS noted itself, is the unemployment rate, while, yeah, it did tick down, it would have been um, 40 basis points higher if not for misclassification issues. So you're still really at 8.3% okay. unemployment rate.
0: Well, great, but that doesn't help me. Where's the Deutsche Bank real unemployment rate? was a parlor game we've been playing, Brett, where we go through the math and everybody says the math doesn't work. What's the real number? What's your recalculated real number? Is it double digit or can you be more optimistic than that?
6: Well, I would say, I mean, the, the U, from the U three perspective, it it should be a three from a U. Yeah, but I want, perspective, U Bank, I want
0: the U Deutsche Bank. I want the U Bank perspective. <laughs> Come on, we all we <laughs> all see out there what's going on. The U three is a right. joke. What's going right. on? What's the real number?
6: Yeah, I think it's definitely a double digit number right now. Thank you. Um, when you're looking at the when you're looking at what's happening here, Tom, is that you, as you see continuing claims on the state level start to start to go down. You're seeing a comm- well, not a commensurate, but a good portion of those rolling off are going on to pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. So that's the federal program with extended benefits that go to, towards year end. Same thing, you're seeing PUA, even though California had some issues with reporting, PUA, which is Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, that's also taking higher. So the total number of people collecting claims is not coming down as fast as what you would think, just looking at the state continuing claims. By the way, PUA and PEUC both expire December 30, at the end of the year. If Congress doesn't do anything, then that's another big hit to income, possibly another couple hundred billion, uh, 200 to 300 billion, Um, and that further dents the profile for spending.
2: Brett, just quickly, you've quantified the kind of damage that would happen to the U.S. economy if we didn't get that fiscal help. Let's just talk about... What kind of damage? Not just in the United States, but in the UK as well. Here, the chancellor talking almost about embracing creative destruction and not allowing it to rip, but acknowledging there are permanent changes in this economy and some businesses that won't be viable in the long term. Can you embrace creative destruction to any degree in a pandemic with the restrictions this government has on right now?
6: Uh, When it comes to, you know, restaurants, do I want to see my father with four restaurants go out of business? Um, And is that creative destruction? Or is that somebody who, through no fault of his own, is being restricted to 50% capacity? So I think it's industry by industry. And when we talk about creative destruction, businesses that, you know, are no longer, are not longer viable through technology or some sort of natural process, sure. But for businesses that, through no fault of their own, are being restricted by the state, right? And they can't operate profitably. There needs to be some sort of state aid.
2: Brett, great to catch up. And send our best to the family, won't you? It's a tough industry. Brett Ryan there, Deutsche Bank
0: senior, U.S. economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.